praise in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. The following is a sermon recently preached at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this message. In our text this morning, Peter is warning the church about false teachers. And it's appropriate that our text this morning, being a doom and gloom text, falls in Lent. It's being the fourth Sunday in Lent. Um, this is the time of the year in the church calendar where we look at the sufferings of Christ. And as we heard in our exhortation this morning, our Father grieves at our sin. This is about sin in the church, this text. This is about false teachers coming into the church, infiltrating it, and preaching false doctrines and leading people astray. So let's look at our text. It's a, it's a large text. It's a, it's a whole chapter of Scripture. And uh, we've already covered some of the context. Peter was writing to Jewish Christians in the, in the diaspora. He's writing to warn them of the coming destruction of the Jews. He was writing to comfort them, saying the, the, the key uh, verse in our text, we will get to it shortly, but um, I'm going to give you a, a preview, is, is verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to, to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. This is not just the key verse, it is the key verse of our text, but it's the key verse of the whole book of 2 Peter. The main point of the book of 2 Peter is that God knows how to deliver the righteous and yet destroy the wicked. So Peter's writing to warn the Christians of the coming destruction, to comfort them because God knows how to save them, and he's writing to instruct them about what they're to do in the meantime, he wrote it, uh, well, you already know when he wrote it. He wrote it just before the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Our text is divided, you can divide it into three sections. Verses 1 to 3, uh, where, where what Peter's saying is, false teachers will be here. They will be here in the church. He says in verse 1, there were, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets teachers among you. Peter's saying, you will have to deal with this. This is going to be a part of your experience in the Christian church. It's not going to catch the apostles unawares that heresies will arise in the church. So false teachers will be here, and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies and bring on themselves swift destruction. Verse 2, they will have many proselytes. They'll be effective in their teaching. It'll look like they're, they're succeeding. And they will blaspheme the way of truth. They will make a mockery of God. They will make a mockery of the church. And they will exploit you by covetousness. This is a warning, verse 3. Um, they will exploit you by covetousness. So watch out for covet covetousness. That, the tenth commandment. that uh, Desiring things that don't belong to you. Don't do that. Because false teachers will use those things to pull you away from the truth. But they will be judged, and they will be destroyed soon. That's verses 1 to 3. We have false prophets. In verses 4 to 10, we have an if-then statement. If this, then this. And the, and, and the whole point of it is, 
is if God knows how, if, if God will destroy the angels, even the angels, the beautiful, glorious angels that he created in the beginning, when they sinned, God said, I will destroy them, and he's bound them in, Satan, in hell. He says, if God's going to destroy the angels, if God's going to destroy the ancient world, which he did with the flood, if God's going to do that, if God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for not repenting of their sin, and yet save righteous Noah, and yet save righteous Lot, then God knows how to do this. He's done it before. He knows how to do it. If God will destroy wickedness and yet save the righteous, then if he's done it before, then he knows how to do it. And he will do it again. This is the promise of 2 Peter 2. This is the promise to the first century Christians who are going into persecution. Don't worry that it looks like the world is coming to an end. Because the world is coming to an end. The, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Judaic era, was their world. These were Jewish Christians. That Everything they'd known about God, they learned from Judaism. And then they accepted Christ, and they recognized him as their Messiah. And Peter's about, what he's saying here is that Judaism is, is dead, it's dying. And we know this because in verses 5 through 8, uh, Peter references Noah and Lot. And it's a reference back to Christ's teaching. There's, there's only one place where Jesus talks about both Noah and Lot in his teaching. And he's talking specifically about the coming, the coming destruction. When the temple, when, when you say, and he's saying, in this generation, not one stone will be left upon another. He's saying that to the, to the Pharisees. And he's saying, uh, and, and he references both Noah and Lot. As in the days of Noah, as in the days of Lot. So it will be here in Jerusalem. So Peter's referring back to what Christ was teaching about the coming destruction. And then we get the main point of our text in verse 9. And, and Peter says, If the Lord knows, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of the judgment. The next section of our text is verses 9 or 10b, the second half of, of verse 10 through the end of the chapter. Now, now this this is a, a this structure. It's, it's about uh, it's again back to false teachers, false false prophets. So for verses 1 to 3 is there's going to be false prophets. That we get the main point of our text. God knows how to save you from the destruction that's coming on them. And then. And then we get the last section of our text, which is a larger section, verses 10 to 22. But it's saying, this is what false prophets are like. This is what they do. He's, first, first of all, Peter calls them names. Then, then he says, these are their sins. Then he says, this is their end. This is where they're going. This is their destination. And then he says, these are the things they do. And, then, and I've, I've divided uh, this... The, this explanation of those those verses into those four sections. So first, Peter calls false teachers names. He says they're beasts in verse 12. They're spots and blemishes in verse 13. They're accursed children in 14. 
They're like Balaam, who had to have a stupid donkey tell him to stop going or he's going to get chopped up by the angel's sword. They, uh, they're dry wells. What good is a dry well? They're waterless clouds. They're, they're storm and tempest with no, no meat. There's nothing to them. They're like a dog, and they're like a sow. It's okay to mock false teachers, people. It's okay. When people are lying to you about God, when they're lying, what does Elijah do to the prophets of, of Baal? He says, what, is your God in the bathroom? Why isn't he answering you? Where's the fire on your altar? You mock false prophets. You mock false teachers. Don't even let them gain the foot ground of having a recognized authority. What is their sin like? Well, it's many faceted. There's all kind of, they're full of sin. But the first thing is they're prideful. They're full of themselves. In verse 10b, they're presumptuous. They presume. They're self-willed. They're, they're stubborn. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They're not afraid to speak evil of those who have true authority. Of those, they're not afraid to speak evil of Jesus, our King. They're not afraid to be full of pride and to speak evil of things they don't even understand. They're evil speakers. They're carousers. Even in the daytime, they're shameless carousers. They're full of lust. Verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery, and I cannot cease from sin. They're covetous. They're lovers of unrighteous gain, like Balaam. And they're slaves of corruption. They are slaves of, they cannot break out of their own slavery to their sin. That's what their sin is like. And their destination is doom. They are on a, on a one-way ticket. They're on a highway to hell. Their doom is certain. They're designed for it, is what Peter tells us in verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed. They're like beasts which are designed for destruction. They're made for it. They will utterly perish. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Verse 13. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness. They will get what's coming to them. The blackness of darkness is reserved for them. Verse 17. And their latter end is worse than, for them than their beginning. And verse 20. So what do they do? What, what do these false teachers do? They deceive, they entice, and they allure. That's their, that's their aim. They, misery loves company. They want to convince those who are on God's side to change sides. Because they're miserable, they need you to be miserable. So who do they deceive, entice, and allure? Verse 14, unstable souls. And, in verse 18, covenant members. The ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. The church is the ark. The covenant 
is the vessel in which we are saved. And these are the people that false teachers are aiming for. They're trying to entice, allure, and deceive. So how do they try to deceive them? In verse 18, by great swelling words of emptiness. They're blowing hot air. They, they lie. They just they straight up lie. The lusts of the flesh. They, they appeal to uh, our, our, our sinful heart. The sinful flesh. The, the thing that we're all fighting. We recognize it's, 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 it's the, the lust of the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the pride of life. So they appeal to the lust of the flesh. Lewdness. And the false promise of liberty. They say, you go to that church, you've got, it. You, you, you know, you go to that church and they just bind you up with all these rules and they're telling you, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do that. We, you come, come, come join us and there's no hell, there's no, there's no, you'll be fine. It's a lie, great swelling words of emptiness, but it's a false promise of liberty. They say, you'll be free. You won't have to serve this God, this church, you can, you can do what you want, and it's okay. And it's a lie. It's a false promise, because they are slaves to their sin. They cannot stop sinning. And that sin has consequences, as we've just talked about. Their doom is certain. They're, they're, they're on a one-way path. And they, they're blind to it. So that's what our text says. When it comes to defending the gospel... Peter does not mince words. False prophets and teachers are deserving of hellfire. It's, there's no other way to put it. If, if you're, if the, the responsibilities that elders and teachers have are so, so strong and so they're held to a higher accountability that false teachers and false prophets are just, they're tempting the Lord's destruction. They're, temp they're, they're inviting Sodom, the, the brimstone and fire that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. False prophets and teachers are deserving of hellfire, and our God is inexorable. He cannot be stopped. He will destroy them. He will send them there shortly. He's not, he's not just going to let them hang out forever. Now, there's a temporal issue here. Um, sometimes it seems like God blesses the, the wicked. The, the Psalms of the Proverbs talk about that. But, but, Second Peter says, God will send them there shortly. And then in the next chapter, chapter 3, he says that a day is like a thousand years, and, he, and, and a thousand years is like a day to our God. So in the grand scheme of things, even if they live to an old age in earthly parlance, they're not really here that long. 70, 80 years, 90 years maybe if they're lucky. But when, when they die, they will go to the judgment seat of God and be punished. And, especially in the context of Second Peter, Peter was talking to first century Jews about two or three years before the destruction of the temple. The lie that the false teachers, the false prophets then in the context there, specifically we're talking about, was that, oh, Jesus really it didn't, wasn't raised from the dead. 
I mean, he said that the temple would be destroyed. And look, it's just standing there. It's, and, and they were convincing Jewish Christians to question their faith. That's why Peter wrote 2 Peter. He says, you know, don't, don't follow after them. It's really coming. And when he said it's coming shortly, he, he was right. It was, it was for 24 months. I mean, it was, it was right around the corner. 24 months, it flies by like that. I mean, there's... It, okay, well, let me move forward. It's, 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 it's coming. They're doing this coming, and, and Peter's saying, it's coming. He delivers prophecies of imminent destruction. And I, I referenced this before. He was referring back to what, what Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 20 to 30. If you, if you want to go back and read that, he's talking about... Luke, in Luke 17, verses 20 to 30, parallel passage of that is Matthew 24, verses 27 to 51. But in those passages, Jesus talking is talking about what's interpreted as the rapture now. Those are, those are the prophecies of the, the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus came back, he destroyed the Jewish world. He destroyed the temple. And, he, and, and that's, that's the exact sign that he referenced in those passages. He says, this generation will see that not one stone will be left on top of another. So Peter calls false teachers names. He describes their character. He describes their sins and their beastliness quite graphically. But how does that apply to... I mean, yes, this is great as far as for them, but how, how, where, what do we have to get out of this, uh, this doom of false teachers? What, what's in it for, for us? Well, here, here it is. There are principles here. There's a principle, first, of imminent destruction of false teachers. False teachers are thinking they're really getting away with something. They, they're getting false, I mean, they're, they're getting wages for their unrighteousness, like Balaam of Beor. But Balaam was eventually killed by the Israelites. You know, it's like the prophets of Baal were getting paid by Jezebel. But eventually, God proved his sovereignty and his power over the prophets of Baal, and the Israelites slaughtered the prophets of Baal. Their imminent destruction is certain. That's a principle. Because they're human. God's divine. His truth will stand and go on. But these, these false prophets are mortal. And they will die. There's a principle about the methods by which they ensnare. They, they're not very ingenious. They just reinvent the wheel when they come about trying to reconvince. When we have false teachers arise today, they use the same methods to, to, to ensnare us. They, they use the same means of trying to create false teaching and heresy. And the results they attain, both the mockery of the church and their imminent destruction, the, their proselytizing in the church, those results cross temporal and, and cultural boundaries. When false teachers go out today and, and seek to, to lie to the church and entice people and allure and, and to bring them into their, their false teachings and to deceive, when they do that, it happens the same thing way here as it did in first century Roman world. So let's look at their tracks. 
Let's look at what it is that they're doing so that we can open our eyes and see how do we deal with this? How do we reject this? How do, Lord, open our eyes so that we see them coming from a mile away. So that we don't fall into their pits. Licentiousness. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. They appeal to our sinful nature. This is the, the Nicolaitans were uh, written about in the, the section to the churches in the beginning of, of Revelation. What the Nicolaitans were trying to do was where they were trying to combine Christian theology and Christian faith with the pagan practices. They were trying to combine Christianity with the way of the world to get away from some of the persecution that comes with being different than the world. Well, the pagan practices were all about temple harlotry, worshiping false gods. And, and, and we see this today in our, in our entertainment culture. The entertainment standards today. Turn on the television, watch movies. If, you just, if you're undiscerning in this, they're combining elements of truth with blatant lies about God. And God does not want to be put on a pedestal alongside the rest of the gods. Because he's not alongside the rest. He is God, and they are not gods. They are demons. We need to, we need to reject, reject that sort of trap. Don't, don't be a dog. Don't be a sow and get covered up by things that you've already been cleansed from. Christ comes and he's cleansed you from, from sexual impurity. He's cleansed you from that. He's, he's freed you from the, the, the suffering of, of the consequences of those sins. Don't, be, don't, be bought, don't buy into that again. They use that. These things pollute you and there's no room for pollution in the pure mind of the faithful. Which is interesting, right at the beginning of chapter 3. Um, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by the way of reminder. You have pure minds. You've been, you've been cleansed. You've recognized God as God and Jesus as his son. Don't forget that. Verse 3, they use co by covetousness, they will exploit you. So they are covetous. They, they're co the, the, the false teachers themselves are covetous. They want the power of a true authority. They want, they want to, Simon wanted to buy the power, the power to bestow the Holy Spirit. He coveted that. And by their covetousness, they want to teach you to be covetous. They will use their deceptive words to cause you to envy, to cause you to envy and to sin. And this is really evident in, in TV evangelism, health and wealth gospel. There's a, there's, there's a health and wealth gospel that says all of the blessings from Scripture, and they just skip over all the curses, where they say, if you send your money, you're making an investment in your, your bank with God, and God will, will give you more than that back. 
And it's not true. No, if you send your money to the church, God will bless you if you're doing it because you're doing it out of faithfulness. And if you're doing it out of, out of, out of love and, and as service. But if you do it out of an investment, out of how much you can get back for it, if you're doing it out of covetousness and believing this lie, this, this health and wealth gospel, then you are in sin, and God will curse that. There will be consequences for that. In our society, there's a rat race culture. Just everybody will sacrifice the, their quality of life to keep up with the Joneses. They will live in debt, incredible amounts of debt, be slaves to their debt. And they'll do this because they're covetous. They, 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 they get to have it now. But it's all a lie. It's all a facade. It's not real. They will use deceptive words. They're, these are heresies. And there's just too many of these to count. But all of them eventually fall into some sort of lie about the true nature of God. A, a heresy would be something like, God doesn't exist. That would be a heresy. So that means you don't have to worry about serving Him. Or, he, there's no such thing as hell. He won't judge you. God's loving that's a lie. God is just. Jesus is not Lord. Another heresy. Jesus was a great man. He was, he, was a, he was a good preacher. Jesus was God in a man suit. So he didn't have the, the same responsibilities. I mean, he, he couldn't sin, so it's it, him to suffer. He didn't really suffer. It was just that, that was an image of suffering. No, Jesus was, was, was really man. Uh, God is unjust if he sends anyone to hell. Because we're just puppets, right? He's telling us that we have to do everything. No. God gave us free will. And we're responsible for that. And God is sovereign. But all of them really amount to this one thing. And Peter puts it quite simply. Even denying the Lord who bought them. It comes down to this. God made you. Jesus died for you. You belong to him. And either you love him and you serve him, or you deny him. And anything other than that is deceit, deceptive words. Next is idolatries. They set up false gods. There are as many of these as there are heresies, but essentially it boils down to this. You become like what you worship. And the lie of the false teachers in this is that we're going to promise you liberty. You can worship whatever you want. That's freedom, right? Wrong. Instead, they'd have you enslaved to your own desires. It's all pride is what this is. You, if you're going to set yourself above the word of God, if you're going to say that I'm going to decide what's worship worthy, then you're setting yourself up as the one who gets to determine what's true and what's real. And you become your own slave master. You become a slave to your own whims. This is not freedom. Christ sets us free. That's where we were before we had Christ. Christ sets us free from that. We've got a true God who's really Lord. He's got freedom. His burden is light. We know what our own burdens are like. They're, that's where we were before we had Christ. But, but in Christ, we have true freedom. 
The next, the next trap that the false teachers will is, they use is rebellions. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Uh, and we see this in, in a lot of different ways. Peter was writing this at the time of the Jewish rebellion. And it stands to reason that Jewish Christians would have been greatly sympathetic to a rebellion that says, oh, the Romans can't have control over the Jews because the Jews are the people, God's people. Well, rebellion is a common theme in the world's cult. In the world, the, the false worship of the world, rebellion is a common theme. And, and, and we see it today in manifestations of it, it's a raw thing, it's cool. On an individual level, it's, it's manly, it's an assertion of independence. It's a way of sticking it to the man. You're going to rebel against the system. That's foolishness. That's not, that's not the world that God made. The, the world that God made, there's true authority. The, 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 the world where Jesus comes and the centurion asks Jesus to heal his son. Or his, or his servant. That, and then Jesus starts going over there and the, the centurion says, No, no you, I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. I'm also a man under authority and I recognize that if you do it and, and you have true authority, it will be done. Well, we are those who are under Christ's authority. And we need to do what he tells us to do. Because he's doing it out of service to us. And he's proven that. He's died for us. And Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority unless it were given to you from above. So when we have real authorities in this world, even though they're wicked, like Pilate, it's our duty to submit to them. Because Christ overturned the world by submitting to Pilate. And he will overturn our world if we submit to him. And pride is the base or ultimate idolatry. And the false teachers are so proud that they will, they'll do whatever they can to suck you in. And this is their last trap. They will resort to baseless name calling. They'll resort, they, they will speak evil of things they don't even understand. They don't even get it. And they'll say, that's bad. They just don't get it. But they know that it's not their way. And nothing could be better than my way. So they'll, they'll lie on it. So these are the traps that the false teachers will suck you into. So don't fall in with these false teachers. Reject their temptations. Because they are doomed. And those who participate in their damnable heresies and vile corruptions will participate in their imminent destruction. We have example after example after example in the scriptures and in the world's in, in world history. The ancient world with the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel was destroyed, Judah was destroyed, the Jewish eon in, 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 in AD 70 was destroyed, the Arian heresy was destroyed, the Roman Catholic Church was destroyed, the Rome was destroyed, God, and these were all things that God blessed. Israel, Judah, Rome. When Constantine became a Christian, Rome was blessed. It, became, it was a world superpower. It, God built it up, and he allowed the church to grow within Rome. But Constantine had to write the city of God in AD 410, 430, because Christians united 
the church with Rome. And they saw barbarians coming and sacking Rome, and they said, Oh no! The church is dying! And Constantine's point was this. No, the church was not dying. Rome is dying. The church will go on. God has a step. Rome is corrupt. God knows how to destroy the wicked and save the righteous. Don't worry about it. Focus on being righteous. God knows how to save the righteous. The work of the, the saving of the world is a work in progress. The ancient world was destroyed, but Noah was saved. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, but Lot was saved. Israel was destroyed, but a remnant was saved. Judah was destroyed, but a remnant was saved. Rome was destroyed. The church went on. The Arian heresy was destroyed, but orthodoxy was established. The Roman Catholic Church had to reform because of the Reformation. God knows how to save the righteous and destroy the wicked. Paul encourages us that we don't need to worry about this because no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The things which God knows how to save the righteous from temptations, the things which false teachers use to, to ensnare you, to entice you, to delure you, to deceive you. He, God knows how to save you from those. It's from, from temptations. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. And if God saved Lot from Sodom and Noah from the flood, and he knows how to save you. So we don't need to worry about it. But now we need to talk a little bit about Lot. Verse 8 is an aside. You know, he's doing his if-then statement, verses 4 through 10. In verse 8, in an aside, he says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot lived in Sodom. There are a lot of Christians today who do exactly what Lot was doing. Lot had a choice. He was there with Abraham, and they're looking out over the valleys, and, or the valley and the hills, and, and Abraham says, do you want to go this way, or do you want to go that way? And Lot says, I'm going where it's green and lush and beautiful, where it's obviously God can bless me there. So God, Lot takes that path. But then, then the next time we bump into Lot, he's living in Sodom. And he's tormenting his righteous soul by, by, by just being surrounded by worldliness. Now, Lot was saved. He was righteous. We have verifiable proof of that right here in 2 Peter. Lot was a saved man. He was righteous, a righteous man. But he lived in Sodom. And, and Christians think, well, you know, Lot did it. Why can't I? Why can't I play with fire? Why can't I dabble in worldliness? Why can't I listen to that music? Why can't I watch those movies? I mean, Lot did it. He got away with it, right? I mean, they're, they're full of lies. I mean, it looks lush. It looks verdant. It looks green. It looks enticing. It, it, it appeals to our sinful hearts. 
it's full of these temptations that the false teachers are pushing at us, trying to, to draw us into their tracks. Sodom is. There were the amenities of living in a city, in a civilization. Um, there's this kind of a hoity-toitiness, this pride. There's community, creature comforts, wealth. All of the temptations which the false teachers abused were readily available. And Lot got away with it, right? Well, not so fast. First of all, he tormented his righteous soul. It was painful for him because, because he was saved. He knew this was all wrong. He could see it, but he's, he, he, he succumbs to it. He's living it. But you cannot wallow in the vomit, in the mire, or the filth of this world and expect to escape unscathed. Lot didn't. Lot lost his daughters who were married to men in that church, in that, in that city. Lot lost his wife. She turned to a pillar of salt. Lot became a loner in the wilderness. Sure, he got... The, I mean, even in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah going to be destroyed. And the angels are saying, get out! And they're taking them by the hand and dragging them out. Lot says, you've been so kind to me. Let me stay in this city then. They're telling him, go to the mountains. He's saying... No, I want to go to this, this city. It's got to be safer than the mountains. Like, like Sodom was so much safer than the fields. And no. So, so he goes there. They're, they're, God is gracious. He's forgiving. He's merciful. He's like, okay, we'll even let you do this. So he goes there. But he couldn't even stay there. He ended up becoming a wanderer in the mountains. Because, because he was a righteous man. And he didn't belong there. He was shamed, he, was, he, he lost his, his worldly possessions, he lost his daughters and sons-in-law, and he, he, uh, he, he, he was ruined. Don't play with fire. Don't dangle over the cliff like that. Reject it. Stay pure. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit the widows and orphans in their sickness or in their need, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Don't play with fire. But God still knows how to save you, even if you're locked. There's no cause for us to fear. God knew how to destroy the wicked and save the righteous from destruction. It's easy for us to get caught up in world events. Earthquakes in Japan, disruption in the Middle East, wicked government in America, Islamic terrorism, wicked music culture, uh, greedy corporate ladder climbing, um, debt-laden society with flashy cars and houses that they can't afford. It's easy for us to get concerned about these things and, and worry about them, the economy, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's okay to be concerned about them, with them, but it's not okay to, to let them cause you to fear. It's not okay to let them dominate your heart or your mind or your soul. It's not okay to let them cause us to worry and to fret about our salvation, 
or about our God. We cannot allow ourselves to be defined by anything more than Christ. We are Christians. We are Christ's. First and foremost, and if we decide to be like the Romans, if we think of America as the church, we will come to a deep crisis of faith at some point. But instead, if we think of America as a bump on the side of the mountain that fills the whole earth in Daniel's dream, then we're on the right track. And the point of 2 Peter is to encourage believers to be diligent in their faith despite the upcoming upheaval of their world. God knows how to save you even in the destruction of the wicked. And Peter tells us this is what we're to do. Verse, chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently preached at Christ Church of Lemison County. If you would like further information about anything in this message, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.